her story about a little boy who was afraid of the dark. And his mummy said to him, will you go out to the back and get the brush? And he went to the back door and he looked out into the back garden and he really didn't want to go out. And he says, mommy, I don't want to go out. And she said, there's no reason to be afraid. Jesus will go with you. And he looked at her and he said, really, will Jesus go with me? And she said, yes, Jesus will go with you. You have no reason to be afraid. Jesus is already out there. He'll go with you. And he said, Jesus really out there? She said, Jesus is out there. You just have to ask him and he'll go with you. So the wee boy thought for a second. He went to the door and he went, Jesus, if you're out there, would you get me the brush? (laughs) Fear, fear, fear can control us and fear can consume us. And this has been a crazy week. I have found myself vacillating this week between looking around me at the world and thinking you're all crazy and looking in the mirror and saying you're crazy. I I really have. I found myself in one moment despairing at the madness that I see all around me and then despairing at my own heart as sometimes I have got caught up in that madness for myself. Yesterday evening, about half three, four o'clock, I was in Tesco next door with my little boy. We were buying a few things, obviously not pasta because there was none. Um, but I, I, I looked down the toilet roll aisle and it was completely empty of all things. There wasn't even a wet wipe there. And uh, I looked down, but I decided to walk down towards the till anyway. And there, halfway down the toilet roll aisle, I looked. And on a shelf was a packet of 18 three-ply toilet rolls. It was shining. It was glowing. It was like the Ark of the Covenant sitting there. It was like all my birthdays, Christmases, and wedding night had come at once. And I looked at it, and I looked around me, and I thought, where did that come from? There wasn't one other loo roll in the whole of Tesco apart from this 18-pack of three-ply. There's three of us in our house. You have no idea how long that'll last. And it was amazing. It was incredible. I grabbed it, and I shared it out. No, I didn't. I I, I walked around kind of proudly with it on my shoulder. Everybody's looking at me like, where did he get that? I'm like, Jehovah Jireh. Um... Honestly, it was this incredible moment. And I was like, Craig, you're, you're losing it. Like, who would have thought bog roll would have got you that excited? Who would have thought that you'd have been walking around Tesco like you'd just won the lottery if you did the lottery? But I was just so thrilled. It has been a crazy week. I'm 45 this year. Some of you are older. I lived through the troubles. A lot of them anyway. I had family in the security forces. I knew what it was to check under our car every day. I knew what it was to be very careful about everywhere we went. I knew what it was to have to change our phone number every six months because we were getting death threats. I I have been there. And yet I have never experienced fear and paranoia like I have experienced this week. There is something sinister behind this. And I don't mean that in a conspiracy theory way. I mean it in a spiritual way. That there is something more going on. Have we a reason to be concerned? Absolutely. Should we take every necessary precaution to stop the virus and especially to protect the vulnerable? Absolutely. As Christians, are we called to be responsible citizens in our community? who exercise wisdom and good judgment at all times? Absolutely. 
So let me make this very clear at the outset today. I am not playing this down. I am not saying that this isn't real. There is a serious issue which threatens our world right now. So please, nobody listen to this and say Craig is writing it off as being silly. This is serious. We need to be responsible. We need to show wisdom. But as Christians, as people of God above all else, we are not to be controlled by fear. We are a people of faith. With everybody losing their minds, Christians are supposed to be a people of conviction, courage, compassion, confidence, who are controlled by a different spirit than everybody else around us. We don't put our heads in the sand and pretend there's no issue. We don't offer pious platitudes and silly memes on Facebook, pretending that everything is okay. But we are a people who believe that there is a God in heaven who rules in absolute authority, in supreme majesty, and he is not panicking. He is in control. Our God is in control. It's in him that we put our hope. It's in him that we put our trust. And at this time of uncertainty, it is in him that we face the future with trust. So I want to look at this topic today when fear goes viral from Judges chapter 6. Let me give you a little bit of background. Judges is one of those books that maybe we're not as familiar with. The book of Judges takes place after the death of Joshua. Remember there was Moses who brought people out of the promised land. Then Joshua brought, them, or brought people out of Egypt. Then Joshua brings them into the promised land. So this is after that. The people who Joshua led, his generation, they had saw seen God do great exploits on their behalf. They had watched the waters part. They had watched provision come down from heaven. They had saw him fight battles that seemed impossible to win, and that yet they were victorious. So the, the Joshua's generation were a generation who had experienced the miraculous, supernatural power of God. But look at what happens in chapter 2 that we read in verses 10 to 12. After that, that's after the death of Joshua, a whole generation, after that, a whole, after that whole generation had been gathered to the fathers, that's, that's Joshua's generation. Another generation grew up who knew, their, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of Egypt. They worshipped and followed various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger. So this second generation grows up and they do not have the same personal experience of God as their father and mother had. They have not experienced the waters parting. They have not experienced God fighting for them. They have not experienced manna and quail in the wilderness. Their faith, if you like, is an inherited faith. It's a second-hand faith. And there's nothing wrong with one sense of that, but each of us needs our own encounter with God. Each of us needs to come to a place where we have our own experience of the living God. Second-hand clothes are good. Second-hand cars are good. Second-hand experiences of God are not good. When times get tough, yes, your parents might have been Christians, your grandparents might have been Christians, but when things get tough, when there's a storm in the world, a second-hand faith will not sustain you and it won't support you. You need your own personal encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so this whole generation grew up and they don't fully follow God. They start to drift. It's slow. It's imperceptible to begin with, as it always is. But over time, they begin to become like the nations around them. They begin to just blend in like everyone else. And then over time, they begin to push the worship of God, Yahweh, the one true God aside. And it says they worship the Baals and the gods of the cultures around them. In other words, their desire is just to be like the world around them. Their desire is just to be like everyone else. And look at what happens. We read this in Judges 17. That in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, as they push God to one side, as they push God's commands to one side, their attitude is this. If it feels good, do it. What is it that the most common expression is today among most people? As long as you're not hurting anybody. Who are you to judge me? Who are you to tell me how to live? As long as it's not hurting anybody, I can live however I want. That was the attitude back then. There's nothing new under the sun, folks. Everyone did what was fit in their own eyes. They did whatever they felt was like doing. If it felt good, they did it. And so there was a culture seeking pleasure, fulfillment, purpose, and intimacy in all the wrong places. And that's what we see in our own culture today. Over the last 50 years, we've pushed God out of our culture. 50 years ago, maybe you didn't go to church, but you were part of a church. Maybe you didn't go to church, but you sent your kids to Sunday school. There was a common kind of sense of we're a Christian nation. You bring people up to know God. You know at least the facts about Jesus' life, whether you accept them and follow them or not. That's different. But at least there was a sense of there being some semblance of of faith undergirding our society. That has been pushed out over the last 50 years. And what have we replaced it with? We've replaced it with a culture of despair where there's a, a huge drug problem, both illegal and prescription drugs. More people are medicated for anxiety and depression than any other time in history. Suicide rates, especially among young men, are higher than ever. Our culture is so sexually messed up where at any time, if a man decides that I'm now a woman, you have to call me. Instead of calling me Stephen, you have to call me Stephanie. And that will soon be law. That is how messed up our culture has become. People are more lonely, more confused, and more isolated than ever. There is a sense of hopelessness in our culture, and at this stage it seems impossible to fix. You see, when a a nation of people reject God, here's what he will often do. He will lift his hand of blessing and protection off from them to let them experience life without him for a while. Sometimes the most scary thing God can do is to give you what you want. Sometimes the most scary thing God can do is say, okay, if you want that, you can have it. And in our own nation and in the nations around the world, as they have pushed God out of schools, as they have pushed God out of every sphere of government and society, I have a feeling that God has simply said, okay, if you don't want me, I will not force myself upon you. And I will, you have not understood that your nation has been under blessing and protection from me. You have taken it for granted. And I am going to lift this off for a little while and see what happens. And it's not out of punishment. I want to tell you that. God's desire is not to punish us, but to discipline us. 
That is always his desire. His desire is not that we rot in hell. His desire is that we turn around and come to repentance. That we turn around and realize the error of our ways. Like the prodigal son in the pig pen, we turn around and come back to the father who is always standing with open arms waiting to embrace us in our mess. This is what we see in the book of Judges. God's people turn their backs on him. They reject him. He lifts his hand of blessing and protection over them. The enemies come in and overwhelm them and defeat them. Over time, things get so bad, they repent. They turn back to God. They cry out to the Lord. And the Lord, in his goodness and grace, intervenes. And he does it by sending a leader a leader called a judge. Now, when you think of a judge, you think of a court. That is not what this is. A leader was simply a judge. This was before the time when there were kings in Israel. So the leaders were judges. That's why this is called the book of Judges. There's a series of different leaders. But we see this spiral. We see this pattern. We see this cycle. If you read the book of Judges, read it sometime. It's the whole way through it. People reject God. They turn to other gods. God lifts his blessing and protection. They get defeated by their enemies. Things get so bad, they cry out to God. God sends a judge. They're delivered. They worship God for a while. But like all of us, when things get good, we forget about God. We turn our own way. And this whole cycle repeats over and over and over again. And eventually, then, things get so bad that they cry out to God. Look at Judges 6.1. We see this cycle of sin and rebellion. Judges 6.1, again, that word should say enough. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, as you go through the book of Judges, this isn't by far not the first time this has happened. That word again, sometimes we feel stuck in again. I've done that again. I don't want to keep doing that. I know it's bad for me. I know it's harmful for me. I know it's destructive. I know it's ruining me. I know it's making me think things I don't want to think. I know it's sending me in a direction I don't want to go. But I feel like I can't get out of it again and again and again. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So we have this cycle, this downward spiral of total devastation, complete desperation, and absolute destruction. They don't know where to turn. They don't know what to do. They hide in caves. They're self-isolating. They're trying not to be seen. They're trying not to be exposed. They're trying to hide from the evil and the badness out there in the world. They're terrified. They're living in constant fear and dread of their enemies. You see, here's the thing. When you no longer have an appropriate fear of a holy God, you will develop an irrational fear to lesser things. That was worth repeating. When you no longer have an appropriate fear of a holy God, you will develop an irrational fear of things that don't deserve to be feared. We talked about this last week with people pleasing. When God is not in his rightful place, everything and everyone else seems bigger than they should be. But when you see God as he really is, in all his glory and majesty and beauty and authority and splendor and holiness and power and might, suddenly everything seems to be okay. These are the people of God. 
God had delivered them. He had brought them into a good land, and yet they have forgotten who he is. And when you forget who God is, you forget who you are, because your identity is in him. And so their courage is gone, their boldness is gone, their confidence is gone, and they are hiding in fear of their lives. They're like unbelieving believers. An unbelieving believer is this, someone who has enough faith to get to heaven, but not enough faith to bring heaven to earth while they're here. An unbelieving believer is this, someone who sings that God is in control, but runs around panicking like everyone else at a time like this. An unbelieving believer is this, someone who puts Psalm 91 on Facebook one day and posts every news story for the rest of the week about how awful things are, you know, for, for, for the next few days. An unbeliever is this, someone who panics just like everyone else is panicking. They get caught up and consumed with the craziness around them. And it's as if the songs that we have sung for 30 years no longer mean anything. It's easy to sing, I will not fear, when there is nothing to fear. It's easy to sing, I will not fear, when you go home every day and your dinner's on the table and you lie up in front of the TV and there's nothing in the world to fear. It's easy to say, I will trust you, Lord, at all times when you don't have to trust. What happens when there are things to fear? What happens when you actually do have to trust? That's when we discover if you're a believing believer or an unbelieving believer. May we be a people who are believing believers who not only say we love God, who not only say we believe this word, but who actually walk it out at this time. We need to be people who, when you say God is in control, you live like God is in control. Let me keep reading verses 3 to 5. Whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and Cellulites, and other eastern people invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them on their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. So here's what was happening. Every time the Israelites would They would labor, they would dig, they would plant their crops. And just at harvest time, like a swarm of locusts, these Midianites would come in and they would destroy the crops and they would kill all the livestock. And it was absolutely devastating for them. Year after year, season after season, this is what would happen. For seven years, it says the Lord did this. He gave them over into the hand of the Midianites. Imagine you work 12 hours a day for a month every day. And at the end of the month, you get your cash handed to you. This is your payment. And just as you walk out, somebody comes and grabs it from you and you're done. You have no money. That's what it was like week after week, month after month. This was what these people were living like. It was a bleak, black picture. And some scholars have tried to figure out why were Israel so unable to defeat the Midianites. What was it about the Midianites that rendered God's people powerless against them. And the reason some scholars have come up with is this, that the Midianites had a new technological advance in warfare. They had a new secret weapon that the Israelites had never had to contend with before. Do you know what this weapon of mass destruction was? The camel. That was it. It was the camel. 
Now, don't take the hump with me, but it was the camel. Did you like that? That was a freebie right there. The Midianites were using camels in battle for the first time, and the Israelites couldn't handle this. They couldn't compete with the killer camels. The camels were not the problem. Their carnality was the problem. Their sin was the issue. And how often do we try to find out what the problem is when we know what it is all along? Do we look for answers rather than dealing the heart of the issue? And the heart of the issue is the heart. We look for all sorts of reasons why society is the way it is. We look for all sorts of reasons why our world and our culture is the way it is. And all sorts of psychological and all sorts of sociological studies. And maybe, just maybe, it's because we are a people who are not aligned with God, our creator. But we will come up with a thousand other reasons why things are not as they should be. You know, what we're seeing right now, I do not believe this is punishment from God. I absolutely don't. I do not believe God has sent this to punish people. The Bible makes that very clear, that there's only one who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and that is Satan. Jesus came that we might have life. But what I do believe, and what it might do, is be used by God to waken people up to the fragility of life, to the reality of just how vulnerable we are as human beings. You see, we all like to think we're in control. We all like to think we're the captains of our lives and the masters of our fate. When the reality is that a wee virus that originated in an obscure province in China three or four months ago has now got us buying 95 ball grows. Like, we honestly have no idea how just, how, how, how little control we actually have. The very next breath you breathe is because there is a God in heaven who gives you that breath. We are absolutely dependent on him for everything. So maybe, just maybe, God will use this to awaken people out of the coma that they have been living in. Who knows? That's what happens here in Judges 6. The Israelites hit rock bottom again. They get so desperate. Look what happens in verse 6. Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. Eventually, they come to a place of such desperation and despair that they have nowhere else to turn but to God. I'm sure some of you have those people in your lives who, whenever you see their name come up on your phone, you think, what do they want now? Because they only ever call you when they want something. You don't hear from them for six months. You could be dying in hospital. You wouldn't hear a thing. But they phone you and they make small talk for five minutes and the whole time you're thinking, just get to the point because I know you want something. That's sometimes what God's people are like. When things are going well, we ignore him. But when things go tough, suddenly we're like, God, we need your help. Do you know what the amazing thing is? God is gracious. God picks up the phone. He's so kind and so loving and so compassionate that all we need to do is call out to him and he responds and he runs towards us. And that's what we see here. God hears and God moves. Look at what he does. Verse 11. The angel of the Lord 
came and sat down under the oak at Ophrah that belonged to Joash from that place where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. There's a few things I want us to see here before we finish today. The first thing is this. The people cry out to God and God speaks to a man called Gideon. They call out to God, God speaks to Gideon. It's a bit like the story of Moses, isn't it? The Israelites, the Hebrews, are in Egypt being oppressed by the Egyptians. They cry out to God, God speaks to a guy called Moses in the wilderness at a burning bush. What's my point? My point is simply this. Just because God is not talking to you doesn't mean he's not talking about you. Just because God isn't answering you directly doesn't mean he's not at work in your life. Just because nothing seems to be happening, I'm sure for the Hebrews in Egypt, when God didn't answer them, I'm sure for the people here, when God didn't answer them, they thought that God had rejected them, that he was doing nothing, that he was ignoring them. And yet God was at work behind the scenes. God was moving things. God was shifting things. God was speaking. God was preparing things. And some of you in your life are praying about things and nothing seems to be happening. But I want to say to you that God is at work behind the scenes. He is working through people and in places that you have no idea about. You're praying and it doesn't seem like God's working, but I promise you, if you are a child of God, he hears your every cry. And he is shifting things and he is moving things and he will answer your prayer. It may not be in the way you want, it may not be in the way you expect, and it may not be through people you even like, but God will hear your cry, and he will answer. I love this quote from John Piper. John Piper said this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you might be aware of three of them. God right now is doing 10,000 things in your life, and you're probably aware of three of them. Just because your prayer hasn't been answered yet, don't assume that it won't be answered. So God shows up to this guy called Gideon. What's Gideon doing? Well, we're told what Gideon's doing. He's threshing wheat in a wine press, which in first read sounds fine, but it makes no sense. You do not thresh wheat in a wine press. What is a wine press? A wine press is a hole in the ground where you put grapes and you crush them to make wine. Funny enough, you press grapes to make wine. That is a, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a hole where you squeeze the juice out and you keep the juice. Threshing wheat, on the other hand, had to take place on an elevated place. You see, here's what threshing wheat was. You brought in the wheat, but it was mixed with chaff. Chaff is lighter than wheat. And so you would bring it to an elevated place. You would toss it into the air and the wind would come along and it would blow away the chaff because the chaff was lighter and you'd be left with the quality stuff. But it says that Gideon is threshing wheat in a depressed place. He's threshing wheat in a hole. It's completely ineffective. It's completely illogical. It's completely irrational. It's completely stupid. It's like trying to dig a hole with a sponge. You can't do it. It's like trying to play, I don't know, golf on a tennis court. It's just you cannot do it. It's, it's completely ineffective. Why is he doing it? For fear of the Midianites. 
He's doing the right thing. He's threshing wheat, but he's doing it in the wrong place. And some of us can be doing the right thing, but we're doing it in the wrong place, and we wonder why we're ineffective. Some of you need to think about that right now. You're giving something your all. You're giving it your best. You're pouring your heart into it, but you're not getting the results. Maybe you just need to make a few small tweaks. You see, Gideon, all he had to do was to rise about three feet up, and it would have been effective. He's doing the right thing in the wrong place. And small changes can make big changes in your life. I'm absolutely convinced, and in my own life and in most people's lives, that most of us are three decisions away from a completely different life. But we're just not willing to make those decisions because of fear. Gideon is doing the right thing, but he's doing it in the wrong place. Why would he do that? What is the point of that? Well, it tells us it was because of fear of the Midianites. The fear of the Midianites was causing him to act irrationally and futile. It was causing him to be completely illogical. And fear will do that. Fear will make you do silly things. Fear will make you think completely irrational. Fear will bring you down to a low place when you're meant to be elevated. Fear will cause you to hide your gifts when God wants you to be, used, to be using your gifts for his glory. Fear will cause you to think that you have nothing to offer, nothing to give, when actually God is saying you have so much to give if you would get out of that pit and step out. There is so much that I have placed within you that I want to use to glorify me. But fear keeps us hidden. Fear keeps us crouching down. Fear keeps us trying to just not be seen, not be, co- not be uncovered. Fear keeps you shrunken and small when God wants to elevate you. And fear was causing Gideon to make completely irrational decisions. Fear again will do that. It will make us do things we would never normally do, like buy 50 toilet rolls, 20 bags of pasta, and 15 cans of beans. The reason you need all that toilet roll is because of all the beans. You know, fear makes us lose all sense of reason and sensibility. Fear makes us do things that just two weeks ago we would never have dreamt we were doing. Fear makes us throw all sense out the window. Somebody said this week, if you need that many toilet rolls for two weeks, you should have been at the doctor quite a while ago. Fear goes viral. Why? It's all consuming, especially when we live in a culture where everybody else is fearful too. It's viral. It's highly contagious. It's a socially transmitted disease. On Tuesday or Wednesday, I was driving through Blairy and Becky had asked me to stop for milk and I stopped in the wee shop in Blairy to get milk and I was walking around because I didn't know where it was and I saw toilet rolls. Again, toilet rolls. I saw them there. Four packs. Now, Becky had bought two packets the day before but I still was like, should I buy toilet rolls? Because I'd been on Facebook that week and I'd seen all the empty shelves and every shop in the world was empty of toilet rolls. So we didn't need toilet rolls, but I was so tempted to buy toilet rolls. Why? Because even though I like to think I'm a kind of sane, rational person, I had been influenced by what I was feeding my mind on. All of the images on social media had been influencing me. Because whatever we feed grows. Whatever you feed grows. If you feed your mind on negativity and fear and anxiety, don't be shocked if you start to feel negativity, fear and anxiety. If you feed your mind on faith and the word of God and the promises of God and the character of God, don't be surprised if you feel peace. 
if you feel joy, if somehow you're able to get through this like nobody else. It's simply the way we're wired as humans. What we allow in shapes our thinking, which then shapes our feelings, that shapes our behavior. So if your behavior is not as it should be, go back and think about what you think about. Paul understood this really well. In Philippians 4, this is what he said. Philippians 4, verses 6 to 9. Do not be anxious about some things. Do not be anxious about anything except COVID-19. Do not be anxious about anything. And that word anything in the Greek means anything. But in every, and that word means every situation. By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And if you do that, if you turn to God, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, it's beyond all rationality. It is a supernatural peace that comes from heaven that the world will not understand. It will stand guard. It will place a sentry at your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. But there's not only prayer. You have a part to play also as well as praying. Finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things and the God of peace will be with you. What are you feeding your mind on right now? How many of us this week have spent more time watching the news than reading the scriptures? Me. How many of us this time have mentioned Corona, and I don't mean the beer, okay, more than we've mentioned the name of Jesus, me. Just being honest with you. How many of us this week have spent more time worrying than worshiping? Not me, actually. I have to be honest about that one. But we, I'm not trying to bring guilt or condemnation. I'm simply trying to say that as a people of faith, we cannot allow ourselves to feed on fear and expect to live by faith. You will express what you take in. The way you think and the way you act is directly related to the input that you put into your mind every day. And so if you don't like the output, change the input. What you give your attention to is what you're exalting in your life. The primary battle is not a virus. The primary battle is our minds. That is the battleground of the enemy always. He goes after our minds to torment us and to bring dread and to bring fear and to bring insanity. And there is a spiritual dimension to this. 2 Timothy 1.7 says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear but a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. Paul says there's such a thing as a spirit of fear. That word spirit is pneuma. It's the same word as he uses for the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is actually a spiritual being. There is a spirit called fear that thrives at times like this. Now, there is a normal fear. There is a healthy fear. There is a rational fear. There is a fear that God gives us as a gift that tells you not to walk through a dark park at two o'clock in the morning. It tells you not to jump out of an airplane without a parachute. It tells me not to jump out of an airplane even with a parachute. Okay, there is a normal, rational fear that stops people bungee jumping. Okay, some of you don't have that, Gene. But there is a normal fear. It's a God-given gift, but then there is a spirit of fear, and it is not from God. 
It is from the pits of hell and it is thriving right now. You aren't meant to have a spirit of fear. You have the Holy Spirit of the living God within you. You're a child of God and you have a spirit of power, of love and a sound mind. You do not have to surrender to fear. And dearly done. Martin Luther, the reformer, said this. He said, I cannot stop the birds flying over my head, but I can stop them nesting in my hair. You can't control what the world is swirling around you, but you don't have to take it in. Fear will knock at your door. You don't have to invite it in. Fear will knock at your door. You don't have to let it stay for dinner. Fear will knock at your door. You don't have to make a bed and let it stay the night. You don't even have to answer the door. You have control over what goes in. For Gideon, the fear was real. They were a real threat. They weren't, they, it wasn't imaginary. They, they couldn't be ignored, but hiding in terror and dread was not the answer. And it's the same with us. It's not that this coronavirus is not a threat. It is. We can't pretend it's not there, but being controlled by fear and dread is not the answer. Viral fear is more fear, or is more harmful than the virus itself. More people, I honestly believe, will die from despair and hopelessness than from COVID-19 at this time. As we will see next week, the answer is doing the right thing, trusting God, and confronting your fear, but not allowing it to control you. As I finish, and I am finishing now. Fear has a language. And fear really can be expressed in two words. What if? We look to the future and we ask, what if? What if I get infected? What if one of my loved ones get infected? What happens if I come into contact with somebody who is infected? What happens if I get exposed? What happens if I get sick? What happens if I lose my job? What happens if I get rejected? What happens if I don't meet? What if, what if, what if, what if I get my heart broken? Fear looks at the future and asks, what if? What if? What if? And it gives you a negative expectation of the future. But you know, faith also has a language. And faith also has two words. And you know what they are? What if? What if God comes through? What if God does a miracle? What if my spouse gets healed? What happens if I meet that person? What if God uses me at this time to speak the gospel to people who have been resistant to it for years? What if God uses me in work to reach people with the good news of Jesus? What if I, I pray for people and they get healed? What happens? What if God provides for me in this situation? What if God uses this to bring glory and honor to his name? Fear is a negative expectation of the future. Fear is an understanding of the goodness of God at all times and that he has only a good future for his people. This is such an opportunity for the people of God to be who we are. This is an opportunity for you, church, to be who God called you to be. Do not squander it. We are meant to be a people of compassion. We are meant to be a people of courage. We are meant to be a people of conviction. We are meant to be a people of care. We are meant to be a people of character, of Christ-likeness, of calm confidence. The world, you might not realize it, but the world are subtly watching to see how we respond right now. 
do we really practice what we preach? They're watching. What will they see? Tozer, one of my favorite preachers and writers, said this. A scared world needs a fearless church. A scared world needs a fearless church. Jesus, talking about the last days, said this. People will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the earth. And that's exactly what we're seeing. But I love what Paul told Timothy. When everybody else is losing their mind, Paul told Timothy this. But you, you, you keep your head in all situations. You keep your head in all situations. Easy for you to say, Paul, you weren't coming up against COVID-19. Yes, this is the last letter Paul ever wrote. This is the last chapter, chapter of the last letter Paul ever wrote. He was writing this from a Roman prison cell, knowing he was about to be executed. So if he can keep his head in that situation, I think he has something to say to us about keeping our heads in this situation. Let me finish with a story. It's a story that happened on September the 11th, 2001, on the day when two airplanes flew into the Twin Towers. It's a story of five men who were up on the highest floor of Tower 2, when the plane hit that tower. Five men get to the stairs and they start to make their way down as quickly as they could. They knew something terrible was about to happen. They just knew and they knew they had to get out of there. And so all five of them are running down the stairs when a lady and a number of men come up and stop them and say, don't go down there. It's too dangerous. There's too much smoke. There's too much fire. Don't go down there. Come up to the roof with us. They'll rescue us with a helicopter. Follow us. Don't go down there. Follow us. Come with us. And in that moment, those five men had to make a decision and it would be the most important decision of their lives. But they probably didn't know it at the time. Will they listen to this lady and go up onto the roof or will they go down the stairs and keep going? And three of them turned and followed the the lady and the other men and went up the stairs. But one young man turned to one older man and the older man looked him in the eye and said, come with me. And they started to make their way down the stairs, staircase by staircase. And the smoke got thicker and the flames got stronger. And their eyes started to sting. And, he started, and the young man started to panic. He started to panic. He didn't know what to do. He thought he had made the wrong decision. And the older man could see he was panicking. So he said, son, put your hand on my back. Put your hand on my back and just keep it there and follow me. Follow me and put your hand on my back. And the young man did what the older man said. And he put his hand on his back. And he followed him down every step. Every step. Through the flames. Through the smoke. Through the dust. Through the stinging uh, stuff that was, that was, that was uh, damaging their eyes and their nose. He, they, he kept his hand on his back. Down stairway by stairway by stairway. The air started to clear. The flames started to clear. Eventually they made it down. They ran out of the building and they got out. And they were the last two people to make it out of that tower alive that day. If they had followed the crowd, if they had listened to the voice of the majority, they would have been killed like everybody else. But they chose, the young man chose to follow a man who said, follow me, put your hand on my back and I will lead you to safety. And at this time there's a man who says, follow me. It doesn't mean you won't suffer. It doesn't mean you won't get sick ever. It doesn't mean you'll avoid all heartache and pain. That is not the gospel. 
That is not what the Bible promises. But he says, if you will place your hand on my back, if you will follow me, I will lead you to safety. I will bring you to the other side. So do not fear. This is our moment, church. This is our moment to show that we believe that there is a God in heaven who is seated on the throne and he rules and he reigns in complete authority, absolute supremacy and total sovereignty. This is our moment, church. What will we do? How will you respond? With fear or with faith? Put your hand on his back and follow him and he will bring you through this time. Let's pray together.